Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. American officials often don't know how many civilians are killed in airstrikes carried out abroad. NGOs have lambasted America for causing any civilian casualties at all. Now, the Pentagon is looking to those same groups to help count the lives lost. President Donald Trump has canceled a deal that made it easier for Cuban baseball players to join American teams. That probably won't change the numbers of people who make the journey to the major leagues. It'll just make that trip more horrible and dangerous. First up, though. Last night, on the streets of Paris, people were singing hymns. Notre Dame, the iconic cathedral that has stood over the city for eight and a half centuries, was ablaze. Firefighters managed to save the Gothic building's main stone structure, including its two towers, but the spire and much of the roof collapsed. The cause is not yet known. President Emmanuel Macron addressed the nation from the scene shortly before midnight. Cette cathédrale, nous la rebâtirons. We will rebuild this cathedral together, he said, and it is undoubtedly part of French destiny. Mr. Macron had been due to give a very different speech, one he'd hoped would unite France and help him reconnect with people there. Well, I was in the office waiting to watch uh, President Macron, who was due to give an address at 8 p.m. on French national television. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief an attempt to answer all the questions and the policy ideas that have been proposed after the Gilets Jaunes and the Yellow Jackets protests. And it was at about 7.20 that I saw images coming up on my computer of smoke coming out of Notre Dame Cathedral, which looked just unbelievable, so I went down to take a look. I think the most striking thing is how quiet people were. It was just disbelief. It's not the only landmark in Paris, but it is the oldest, most iconic landmark for, you know, most prisons. You see Notre Dame from so many different angles in Paris when you cross bridges on either side of the Seine. And people were just just staring in disbelief at it. And in the middle, perhaps the most dramatic part was the, the, the fall of the spire. What was that moment like for you? Yes, that was quite early on in the evening when the spire collapsed. It was a 19th century restoration, so, and it was in fact that 
particular spire was the was the subject or the object rather of the of a renovation project which has been going on. So this has been scaffolding around that spire for a while since last summer, where uh, builders are trying to to renovate that spire. But that was exactly where the fire seemed to be at its strongest. And uh, when the spire toppled, I think that's the moment that a lot of people watching, certainly when I saw that, I thought this this really could be the beginning of the end for Notre Dame altogether. You mentioned that it's, you know, quite central. It's a landmark you see from lots of places and so on. But but what does it mean to, to France and its people? I think what's interesting about Notre Dame is this: is that it means sort of something to everyone. Uh, it's obviously a Catholic church, a Catholic cathedral. It's still a place of worship. So if you go on a Sunday, you can go to Mass and you will see local Parisians worshipping there. But it's much more than that. France is a secular country. And in fact, Notre Dame belongs to the state. And it is a, a property that is owned by the French state. And France therefore incorporates it in all manner of sort of important moments for the nation. You could think of, for example, the memorial service for Charles de Gaulle, uh, the former French president. It's seen as part of of French life beyond, I would say, even its religious dimension. Um, so, and I think, you know, it's even for Parisians who don't necessarily spend much time inside Notre Dame, it's because you can see it from everywhere. It, it's such a, a familiar part of the landscape. And Paris, really central Paris is quite small. Walk, people walk around a lot uh, or cycle. And therefore, you know, Notre Dame, because it's so central, it's on the island right in the middle, that it's, you, you come across it in your daily life very, very often as a, as a working or living in Paris. And I think it's therefore, it's, it's you know, it's the history, it's the oldest land. And it's it's just it's a sort of familiar part of of every Parisian and every French person, I, I think. France has had its challenges over the, over the past few months, and you mentioned that uh, there was going to be some closure about that last night before the, the speech was cancelled. What was the mood like in, in France up to that point? In the lead up to that. It's been a very tense few months for for the French, partly or mainly because um, for nearly 22 consecutive weekends, every single Saturday, including over Christmas and New Year, there have been demonstrations and protests by the yellow yellow vest, yellow jacket. This was a, a sort of revolt against a, a carbon tax on, on motor fuel initially, but it widened out very fast into a, into a sort of rebellion against President Macron and his style of governing and, and against, you know, people who were on, on tight budgets who felt that they, uh, that they, they couldn't uh, cope. So I think that the sense was that France has had a really difficult past four or five months, that there has been, it, it, President Macron has faced his first real political crisis and a very serious one, and that this was perhaps the moment at which he was going to mark the end of that and come up with some kind of a series of policy ideas that could bring the nation back together again. But you know, this is really the last thing that the French needed. At the other, on the other hand, you know, sometimes it takes these sort of absolute devastating national events to to bring a nation together. So for, for President Macron, I think the real challenge is whether he can find the right words that will touch people in the right way. He's a president who's sometimes accused of being arrogant and out of touch and disconnected and a bit haughty in his manner. And I think this is one of those moments when a leader is really tested and their ability to touch people, to say what people want to hear and to unite people rather than and put an end to what has been a very divisive time on, on French streets, certainly over, the, uh, over these weekend protests. Sophie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. President Donald Trump came into office promising to wind down America's wars. But in some places, he's ramped them up. In Somalia, for example, the number of airstrikes targeting extremists has increased since Mr. Trump took office. They've killed about 800 people. The Pentagon says those killed were all jihadists. The rights group Amnesty International has gathered evidence suggesting civilians have died in the strikes too. And this is not an isolated case. Almost anywhere America is dropping bombs, you will find a gap between the number of civilians that the Americans say they've killed and the number of people that NGOs, monitoring groups, other watchdogs say is the real figure. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. So that discrepancy is worldwide, from Libya in the West all the way to Pakistan in the East. But the highest concentration of recent American firepower has been in Iraq and Syria in the fight against Islamic State. In the Iraqi city of Mosul, airstrikes by a U.S.-led coalition became a regular occurrence. The first time the airstrikes happened, the windows were broken. We stopped uh, repairing the windows because whenever we repair it, it will be destroyed again. Omar Mohammed is a historian who lived through the IS occupation of Mosul, documenting it on a website called Mosul Eye. He says airstrikes missed their mark many times. We know there was the location of ISIS in that neighborhood, which is, which is my neighborhood. And we know that they were hiding weapons in that house. But the airstrike didn't reach that house. It destroyed three houses next to that house, where the three houses were full of uh, civilians, not ISIS. You could see in the street the damage. You could see the, the flesh, the human bodies. Many of them were children, women, and elderly. Mr. Mohammed says much of the time the coalition denied any civilians had died. The discrepancies in death toll in Iraq and Syria have been highlighted by non-governmental organizations who have been keeping their own counts. Now, up until the last month, the coalition that the U.S. leads said, OK, we, we admit to killing 1,200 or so people. Air Wars, which is a, a NGO based in London, says, no, you've killed six times that number. You've killed over 7,500 civilians. So how does that gap come about? Well, there are a number of reasons, I think. It doesn't necessarily have to be about uh, one side lying. In particular, the Americans are not on the ground, right? A lot of these airstrikes are ramping up precisely because there are fewer troops on the ground to do some of this fighting, and therefore you do more of it from the sky. In fact, you rely on local allies who may be calling in airstrikes. That could be you know, the, the Syrian Kurds in, in, in northern Syria. It could be a CIA-backed paramilitary units in Afghanistan. They don't have the expertise or the interest, for that matter, to go in to the places they've bombed and conduct forensic, careful investigations. So the Americans have to rely on overhead imagery. That's not going to show you the people inside buildings. It's not going to show you the kind of detail you would get on the ground. So that's one of the problems. You only count 
what you see, of course you'll undercount in that sense. There are also other problems. So for example, the Americans might only, and we saw this in Iraq and Syria at a time, would only look at allegations within 50 meters or so of, of the places they'd struck. Now, that's a much smaller area than the area that might be impacted by the bombs. What, what's the history here? What, what have the policies in, uh, on reporting casualties been in the past and, and how's that changing? Well, I think the problem has been there haven't been very clear policies. So in Afghanistan, for example, uh, we had very high levels of civilian casualties at the beginning of the campaign. Then you had generals like David Petraeus, Stanley McChrystal come in. They did a great deal to say, well, look, where are we going wrong? How do we improve? How do we strike more precisely? How do we evaluate this? And the numbers went down. But later on, they went up again because these policies of counting carefully, of institutionalizing the way you think about reducing civilian harm, that wasn't always very consistent and it wasn't always very sustainable. Has the number of civilian casualties gone up or down under Mr. Trump? It's probably gone up. uh, And one of the reasons for that is he loosened some of the rules around targeting in some of the places that we've seen. He devolved some of the authority to commanders in the field and said, look, you don't have to go back to this bureaucratic interagency process in Washington where senior policymakers will pour over your targeting sheets and the intelligence and make a decision. You can make the decision yourself. When you put all that together, I think it's inevitable that it would result in a higher rate of civilians being killed, whether because they're being caught up in legitimate targets or because they're being what's called misidentified. That is, you think someone is a competent when they're not. As groups like Amnesty and Air Wars uh, get better data and and sort of publicize them, that draws a lot of attention to this question in particular you know, as regards American involvement. Do you think the Americans are making any changes in, in light of that? I think the Americans are thinking very hard about this. They felt all of this pressure from NGOs and from others. Now, we saw recently in the last couple of months that the Americans declassified a study that they wrote last year looking at civilian casualties over the preceding three years, from 2015 right up to 2017. And they concluded, well, you know, look, we, the Pentagon, have done a reasonable job of minimizing civilian harm. We are systematically undercounting casualties. That's what the study concluded. And they said, you know, look, we have to do more to seek out other people's estimates, outside groups' estimates of these things, and not just rely on our own internal sources. So the kind of strange thing you find is that the very same NGOs who have been publicly lambasting the Americans and other countries for killing civilians, groups like Air Wars and others, are now providing quite a lot of information, sometimes on a sort of very regular basis, to the Department of Defense. That doesn't mean the study is set in stone or is is immediately taken up as policy, but I think it shows the Pentagon is thinking a lot harder than it was about this. About the counting because of because of these discrepancies now kind of narrowing or about the number of casualties inflicted in the first place? I think he's thinking about both. One of the points made by um, Larry Lewis, who's someone who did lots of studies in Afghanistan for the military on how to reduce civilian harm, was to say your collateral damage estimation process, which is the way you assess before a strike, how many civilians do we think might get killed? That has never been calibrated against the number of people who actually are killed. So we need to calibrate this to make sure that these are realistic assumptions. If you don't have realistic assumptions and you think, my model says I'm not going to kill anyone, you may be primed not to count them or to assess them properly after they have died. So the way you uh, estimate casualties before a strike and the way you count them afterwards may be linked. And in the meantime, do you expect more transparency from the American military about this stuff? I think it's sort of one step 
forwards, one step backwards in many cases, right? So Congress has demanded lots of things. They've demanded that the Department of Defense publish an annual report on global casualties. It shows how many people have been killed. But that's people killed by the Department of Defense. Soldiers are not the only one uh, killing people. It's spies, right? The CIA runs many of these drones because these are in places where the US doesn't want to admit it's running an actual war in, in Pakistan, in, in bits of Somalia, in, in, in bits of uh, other countries. So what Trump did in, uh, in March was uh, to revoke an Obama-era executive order who had said, actually, we need to publish the number of people who have died on these undeclared battlefields like Pakistan, Trump has canceled that policy. So I think we're seeing transparency grow in some areas and Congress is interested in perhaps doing more on that. But it doesn't appear the White House is particularly keen on helping that process along and is in fact taking us backwards in some ways. Shashank, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You'll certainly have heard the music. Perhaps you've had the rum, and outside America anyway, you might have tried the cigars. For decades, America has shunned Cuba's exports in all their forms. But during Barack Obama's presidency, the push was to open up relations. That has changed, and now President Donald Trump is trying to crimp another key Cuban export. Ever since the United States imposed a trade embargo on Cuba, Baseball players from that country have been unable to travel legally to the United States to work. Dan Rosenheck edits Game Theory, The Economist's sports blog, and he's our resident baseball fanatic. One of the Trump administration's lodestars on foreign policy has been to try to undo whatever Barack Obama did. In this case, because Obama pursued an opening and rapprochement with the Cuban government, the Trump administration is set about trying to reverse that wherever possible. Among the changes made by the Obama administration were relaxations on travel policy, sending remittances, etc. The Trump administration has sought to undo those, and now it's trying to do the same with baseball. The pretense is that the deal with Major League Baseball and Cuba basically institutes a similar policy to the one that exists between Major League Baseball and the Mexican League or the Japanese League. The principle there is that teams and leagues in these countries invest a lot of time and effort and money in developing players, and then if Major League Baseball just comes and poaches them, they're left with no return on their investment. As a result, Major League Baseball has reached agreements with leagues in other countries where their teams have to pay a fee or the league has to pay a fee to the local employer in exchange for receiving the rights to that player. The Trump administration and some of its uh, hawkish Republican supporters in Congress argue that in doing so, because the Cuban Baseball League, like everything else in the country, is state-owned, that authorizes American companies to give money directly to the repressive Cuban government. And under the terms of the embargo, that's illegal. And how do people feel about that? Major League Baseball will certainly be extremely displeased with it. This has been a thorn in the game side for many years. Like any business, they're trying to get the best talent they can from all over the world. And when players come from the Dominican Republic or Japan, they can move legally and the game pays a fee to the local league where necessary and that's it. Whereas for Cuban players, they've had to endure reputational risk, harrowing journeys and deal with human traffickers in order to pursue their dream on American shores. All it's meant is that rather than hopping on a plane 
and showing up with uh, a passport and a suitcase. They've had to endure months-long odysseys wrangling with human traffickers at gunpoint. In, in which case it must be the Cuban players who are, who are the most disappointed by this. Indeed they are. Uh, a number of them, particularly Aroldis Chapman, who is nicknamed the Cuban Missile for being the hardest-throwing pitcher in Major League history, uh, have, have indeed spoken out about how much they were looking forward to a world in which their countrymen, just like people from anywhere else in the world, could immigrate to and work legally in the U.S. without enduring the kind of suffering that, uh, that so many of them did. Sadly, for now, it appears that that will not be the case. Dan, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.